session with Dr. Farid Holakwi. Good evening, welcome to In Session. I'm your host, Dr. Fadi Tolaku, and I'll be with you for the next hour here on Radio Hamra. Studio number to call in, 310-441-0555. You can follow me on Twitter or Instagram or like my page on Facebook to get updates on the show or suggest topics or books for the program. And the shows are uploaded at the end of each week to my SoundCloud page and podcast on Spotify and Apple Podcasts. Um, I can hear my own voice now through the headphones. Uh, had a great time this weekend with my family, but was in Fresno, California, and my allergies always get pretty bad there. And so what you're hearing is um, recovering from a lot of allergies. Uh, I, it's it's one of those things where you don't hear it till you hear it. I knew my voice was different, but hearing it myself, I can sense how different it is. So bear with me. Also... A little bit more shallow when it comes to breathing so um, if you thought I talked too fast before this might be your favorite show let's see how it goes um, but the book of the week for this week that I'll talk about on next Monday's show is how we read now by Naomi S Barron how we read now strategic choices for print screen and audio as of course I read these books every week um, and I saw another book on how we read or related to reading I thought that would be interesting just to know more about that and see some of the more recent science about how we read especially when it comes to things like audiobooks or reading on screens reading on phones and so I think the book addresses those issues look forward to reading and sharing it with you next week the book of the week from last week that I will talk about tonight is On Being Certain by Robert A. Burton. I guess that kind of rhymes. On Being Certain, Believing You Are Right Even When You're Not. And so just that title uh, drew me in. As I say, I do judge a lot of the books by their covers, by their titles, by their authors, when I try to find the books to read for the show. And this one, uh, when I read the description of it, I found quite fascinating this sense that being certain, so when you think, okay, I know this is true, what is that really, this sense of knowing, or he calls it a feeling of knowing, and he describes it as exactly that, a feeling, that although we tend to think of it like, okay, I know this, so it's coming from some kind of rational mind, rational thinking, he describes a feeling of knowing that's really what we are experiencing and we can sense this sometimes we'll say oh that just feels right or I feel this to be true and we might think well there's some things we feel true about but there's some things we just know and so throughout the book he also challenges this notion of even what does it mean to know something and so I enjoyed the discussion and he talks about different aspects of even neuroscience that gives some evidence for what he's discussing. The book is about, I think, 14 years old. And so I'm sure the neuroscience is, is accurate. I will say when I read books on neuroscience or that have a neuroscience component that are a little bit on the older side, and this I would consider on the older side because of how 
quickly the science changes when it comes to neuroscience, or I should say how much is added or revised to a degree. That's, I'm a little bit hesitant to go too deep into the neuroscience when it's been uh, quite some time since the science has been, the science that's being discussed has been um, concluded or the research has been done. But nonetheless, I, I wholeheartedly agree with this thesis of the book that really this feeling of knowing is similar to other feelings we have, like anger or sadness, that we feel something, but it doesn't necessarily mean we are right. Uh, this is also similar to what we see with eyewitness testimony, that when people are testifying, let's say an eyewitness saw a crime, whatever that might be, seeing someone flee a scene or seeing an action being taken, there is research suggesting that how confident they say they are is not correlated with how accurate their testimony is. So just because someone says, I'm totally 100% sure about this or 95% sure that this is what happened or this was the, the perpetrator, this was the person I saw that night, just because they're more confident doesn't mean they're more likely to be correct. So this, in a way, is further evidence for this notion that this feeling is not necessarily based on something purely rational. And I also want to talk a bit about intuition, which he talks about intuition, gut feelings, sometimes interchangeably used, but something that can be quite useful to look at or think about. Um, well, actually, I'll talk about that now. So sometimes we, you know, we'll hear certain things like, your intuition is never wrong. Always trust your gut. And so I do think there is a lot of even wisdom or um, understanding that could come from our gut feelings and our intuition. The issue I have is when people try to find these absolutes to then live their life by it. So always trust your intuition. And we look for these things because it makes it a lot easier than the more accurate description, which is pay attention to your intuition or your intuition may guide you in an important direction or have some added information when it comes to making a decision. But I don't agree with always trust your intuition or your gut feelings because I've seen how much, of course, I can look at my own life, but really anyone's life, but especially as a therapist, I've seen how much people's gut feelings and intuitions can lead them astray. Yes, it definitely can have lots of value, which I think is important to keep in mind. But also our intuition, those gut feelings, can be coming from unhealthy places. So, for example, if you grew up in a home that had lots of conflict or and you had a really bad relationship with your parents, and let's say your parents were even abusive, unfortunately, your gut feeling might attract you towards people that are unhealthy for you because they'll be similar to these family experiences that you had. Something about them will feel familiar, will feel like home, even if it's unhealthy. And then you'll hear some people say, well, no, no, that's not your actual intuition. That's coming from something else. Well, you know, it's it, that sounds to me more like an argument of what I'm saying is right, except for the cases where it's wrong, it's something different. But every time I'm saying it, it's the right way. So those gut feelings can definitely lead you the wrong way too. But they can be very important as well. If we totally ignore them, 
we're missing out on a lot of information. So to me, it's not about always trust it or never trust it, but that you pay attention to what it's telling you and try to understand it and incorporate it into your decision-making, but you can't just rely on it every single time. Or you'll hear people say, if you're on a multiple-choice test, your first choice is always right. And that's not true. Sometimes you misread the questions. Sometimes you remembered something wrong. Sometimes your gut feeling takes you the wrong way. You think about it a bit. You're like, oh, actually, no, no, it's not B, it's D. And you change your answer to the correct one. So there's even research that's been done that's shown that this is not the case, that your gut and first answer on a multiple choice test is always going to be right and you should never change it. But again, we look for these hard and fast rules because it's easier to think, never change your answer. That's a lot easier to follow than sometimes change your answer or you can't know for sure because then you have to think about it and it becomes case by case and it's a lot harder to deal with. And even that's this uh, thesis that comes up in the book related to this feeling of knowing is also this recognition that as much as we think we know what we know, we're so certain of it, that if we recognize that it's more a feeling than some kind of actual certainty that exists objectively, whatever that means, we might be a little bit more cautious to say we know something 100%. We could say we're confident in it or we believe strongly, but to say we know is something that we should be more cautious with, and I actually agree with him on that. He does share even about things like episodic memory, and as a therapist who works with couples at times, it can be quite incredible to hear two people describe the same argument that they were both at and both in, but have two very different stories about what happened. I never said that. Or no, no, you started at first by saying this. I didn't raise my voice, or this didn't even happen, or that was the other day. That wasn't that argument. And so... I've had so many instances where I'll have a couple tell me an argument they've had, and at the end of it, someone might conclude, well, one of them must be lying because they are so different in their stories that one of them must be concealing the truth or manipulating or doing something. And of course, that can happen, but more often than not, it's just that people can remember the same experience quite differently, but feel very confident of that memory of what happened. Not only that, the same person can feel very confident about their memory of some kind of incident, but have very different recollections if you are even maybe days apart, but especially years apart. So there's been research on things like, for example, these flashbulb memories. Where were you when you found out about September 11th? Or depending on your age, uh, when JFK was assassinated or the Challenger explosion. And they've done research on these types of big events and incidents that where people think, well, of course, I will never forget where I was when I heard the news or when I saw the news. But they've done studies that have shown people will, for example, write down what happened, uh, let's say, very shortly after the incident. And then years later, or depending, months later, years later, they'll go back and ask them again, well, where were you when you found out, let's say, about September 11th? And people will, with high confidence, say this is what happened. But then when they look at what they wrote originally, they'll see that it doesn't match. And people can be in such disbelief. Not everyone, of course, but some people will. Many people will. And people can be in such disbelief that they'll say, well, that looks like my handwriting, but that's not what happened. That's not 
what I experienced. That must be something else. And it could be quite um, confusing and feel like, how is this possible? And it makes us doubt so many things that how could I forget what happened? Or there's no way I remember what happened. And so our feelings about our memories or how confident we are is not necessarily correlated with how true it is. Our memories feel very real. You even have experiences like I've had this before where sometimes someone will say, oh yeah, what happened in this incident? And then you can't remember, or I'll say, I can't remember. Was I there or did someone tell me the story so much that I thought I was there for this part of it? Now, maybe it's somewhere you've been before, let's say at a friend's house, but maybe you weren't there that time or you can't remember if you were there that time that something happened, but you heard the story so much or they showed you a picture of it or a video of something that happened. And now because you have that experience, that sensation of seeing it, whether it was in your mind's eye or you actually got the, the footage of it that then was in your brain, you have this felt experience of that and you can't determine whether you were actually there or it was just that you were told about it or saw the video of something you experienced in your life or maybe you didn't experience. So it is humbling to be aware of this, that we, our brains are amazing things, but of course they get things wrong often as well. And that's something we have to be mindful of. Now he also talks about the ways we sometimes think of the rational mind and almost like it's separate from the rest of our brain in some way, or that we can be so clear that it's this part is rational, this part is irrational, or this part is conscious, this part is completely unconscious, or vice versa, when really it's not so cut and dried like that, that there is no separate rational mind that can come online and be completely rational and separate from any kind of bias or understanding, that every type of thinking and thought and experience we have has biases baked into it and we have to acknowledge and accept that the ignoring that is what's going to get us into trouble when you ignore that there's a bias or there's a possibility for bias then you can really get yourself into trouble but unfortunately we tend to think this way or we hear lots of authors talk about it and even i've talked about it i'm sure this rational mind versus our irrational mind or emotional mind like there are these two completely distinct things when really there's a constant interplay between how our that's just how our brain works there's an interplay between the different parts that we can't say something is purely rational and so often what we experience is we have feelings or things that come up and we then come up with understandings for why that might be true but we might experience it as if we thought all those things to be true we see this with, for example, moral or political issues where we find research by Jonathan Haidt and others has shown that it's more of an emotional reaction we have to the moral or political issue. But then we, after the fact, come up with our reasons for why we believe it to be true. But our experience of it is the other way around. It's like, oh no, of course, it's nothing about feelings or a reaction. I've thought about this moral issue. I've weighed the pros and the cons of the political decision to be made and come to this rational conclusion, conclusion and judgment based purely on that. There's no feelings involved. And so many people want to believe 
that they are purely rational, but that itself is coming from this feeling of wanting to be that way. There's a desire or wish to be that way, rather than it's actually how we are. So I enjoyed these types of discussions that came up in the book on being certain by Robert A. Burton, and especially this main thesis, which can seem paradoxical to us because we think of certainty as this this really true thing. If I think something is true, it's true, or I know what I know. But it really makes you question those things, and not in a way that just leaves you with nothing, but with more of an understanding of the limitations that we have in understanding or knowing what we know, or even when we talk about that. And I think it makes sense. The same brain that's trying to understand itself, of course, it's going to be limited in how it can do that. And so I enjoyed the, the discussions that he brought up in this book, sometimes philosophical, sometimes um, taking from neuroscientific research, but really making us think more about the ways we think and to try to even know more about what it means to know something. So that was On Being Certain by Robert A. Burton. Let's go to first commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So in the first segment, I was talking about the book On Being Certain um, by Robert A. Burton. Every time I say it, I hear the rhyme. Um, and so, you know, this is a, a important topic for me when I, I was reading the book because, of course, just understanding this feeling of certainty, feeling of knowing that we experience and recognizing that it it is that more than anything a feeling. It's not necessarily based on uh, some kind of truth or that we know something but that it's something that we still find carries a lot of significance for us. So to begin with, because we tend to think we know what we know or that we can know for sure something, we look to others who tell us that they know something for sure because that is always more um, calming of our anxiety. It makes us feel better. It makes us feel more reassured when someone tells us they know something. For sure, I know this to be true. We listen up to what they have to say. And so when we read a book like this, we contemplate some of these types of notions that we can believe something strongly most of the time, but to say you know something, other than he talks about things like, let's say, semantic facts, that the capital of California, Sacramento, is a fact that can be verified. But things about most other types of things or facts about other things or they're usually more opinions about other things can't be known for sure and this book I think it was written as I mentioned a little while ago um, he mentioned a few things related to either YouTube or some things like that but they were newer back then and so we've definitely seen an explosion in social media and different types of ways that we get our news and media and information that has accelerated this notion or this currency of certainty that people are looking for people who say they know something if there is a dating expert they tell you these are the three things you should never do or a financial expert tells, tells you five things that if you do you will definitely make a lot of money but when we look at those actual realms of of the world let's say dating i said and and investing there isn't that type of certainty that anyone can actually give you when we look at what we do know but people are looking for people to tell them they know and then to follow them. Because even as I was saying before about these rules, we want to always trust 
your intuition. It's never going to be wrong. It'll never lead you astray. Never change your answer on a multiple choice test. It's always right, the first thing you think of. These types of rules give us some kind of comfort to have that certainty. Even we can think that this feeling of certainty might serve some kind of purpose in that way that it gives us that comfort when we have an uncertain world. We're looking for that certainty. But I think we have to be very careful about this, that people know that, even if they consciously might not be aware of it, they probably are, but even unconsciously, that people want to hear someone who tells them they know something for sure. And so the reason I brought up things like social media is that these things are more likely to become popular. If you put out a video that says you know something for sure, you're more likely to get people to listen to it than if you say, here are some thoughts I have, or I strongly believe this to be true, or I strongly believe this to be a good opinion or the way to do something, you're less likely to get lots of hits and shares and all those things that makes it become more likely that others see what you're doing. And so what we've created, or what has been created, is a world where we encourage and reinforce the ideas that actually aren't based on some kind of valid understanding of things or they're, we can say it another way, overconfident or overselling, but overselling does quite well in this market. If you say you know something for sure, you're more likely for people to share it. It might have been true before, but now it's getting accelerated with what, with what is happening. And so I see this with videos, no matter what it's about, it's a very clear, this is how this is. Did you know this is the best way to do this? Did you know this is the best movie or the best song? Or even with things that are subjective like art, giving these opinions that are so definitive because that certainty gives us that comfort. And so he talks about in this in the book as well, I think it's a quote from F. Scott Fitzgerald, that if you can hold two contradictory ideas in your mind at the same time and function, that's a really good thing. The quote is much better than that, but it's something along those lines. But that could be something that's very difficult for us to do. We need to just know who is better, what is better, what's the right thing. It's hard for us to think, well, we don't know for sure, or here is a preference, or here are some of the um, opinions on this, or some of the evidence supporting both sides. We want to know things with absolute certainty. But can we sit with that uncertainty? Can we sit with that unknowing? This actually will help us in a lot of different ways. Even, for example, if you are a therapist and they've done research on this, the more quickly, let's say if they present you a, a case, the more quickly you come to a conclusion about a diagnosis, the harder it is for you to then change that even if you get disconfirming evidence. So this is um, related to something called the confirmation bias, that once we believe something to be true, we seek out information that confirms what we believe and we ignore or can justify things that disconfirm or go against what we believe. So if my conclusion is bipolar disorder, but then they uh, present more evidence that shows no signs of, let's say, mania or no signs of the actual depression that I thought I was seeing, if I already thought, no, 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 this is bipolar disorder, I'm going to have a harder time changing my mind, meaning that I'm going to be less good at evaluating the information, evaluating what is actually out there or the most uh, accurate way to look at what is going on. So 
This doesn't mean, of course, to never have conclusions about anything. We have to do that in different times and different ways. But to be mindful of the ones you're making and be mindful that when you make them, there is a cost that is that you pay when you make some kind of decision or conclusion. When you think you know something and you are, think you're certain of it, or you think it's even better to say how certain you are, you're going to be less good at looking at the new information. We see this also with things like politics, that if people are Democrats or Republicans or they support this candidate or that candidate, we know that they become very biased at looking at the information related to political issues or their candidate because they see it through a certain lens that makes them think it has to be this way or has to be that way, that no, 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 if if it supports my policy position, then... It was good research. If it goes against it, there was something wrong with the research. And there's been research on this, that when people read a study that supports what they already believe, they think, see, I was right. And if they read research or read a report or article that goes against what they believe, they look for holes in it. Oh, this is, oh, look, this is a biased reporter. Or look, the methodology was not good on this research. So this is not trustworthy. We can't look at these results and make any conclusions or take any evidence from that. So sitting in this sense of not knowing, although it can be more uncomfortable because certainty takes away some anxiety when we are sure of something or we think we are sure of something, it could be much better for us to be able to sit with that, to say, you know what, I I feel a certain way, this is how it seems to me, but I can't say I know for sure. And I see this with all types of issues, from economic issues that people will post something online and think they know the best way to tax or not tax or do something, or political issues or um, issues even related to, let's say, what's happening in Iran, that people say, oh, we have to do it this way. Or I know everyone has a theory, and I think it's good to talk about them and have conversations, but people are very certain that they know the exact right thing to do or that needs to be done or that the people there should do or that everyone outside should do. We don't know for sure. Even I do suggest sharing information and sharing the news. To me, that seems like it is a good idea. I believe it to be true for sure. Uh, Or I can't say for sure, but I believe it to be true. But I can't be for sure about that. This is another dilemma we do face as human beings that we can't be sure, but we have to take action or we have to recognize that inaction is also a decision. And that's something that's tough about how we do things. Sometimes we can try to think about something in a vacuum. Well, what's the best way to do this? What's the best way to invest your money? And you could spend some time on that, but if you spend 50 years figuring that out, well, then it might be too late now to invest your money or you should have invested a long time ago and you lost that opportunity as well. So we're always faced with making some decisions. That's where we have to be mindful that even though we're not certain, we might have to make a decision. But coming back to this concept of being able to hold on to two things at the same time or being aware that we might not be so certain of something or that we might not know what we think we know, it can be very important to think about things in a way that allows for you to be open to hearing both sides of things. So if someone shares some information with you, be aware that that's likely going to bias your opinion. So for example, I I shared this in the last segment. Uh, two people are in an argument. You have to be aware that whoever side you hear first 
is likely going to bias you towards their side because let's say you hear from it's a husband and a wife you hear the wife's side of things and then now you somebody to think about it and you're like oh wow the husband was so wrong if you especially have enough time to think about it in that way now when you hear the husband's side of things you're going to think oh yeah no he, look how he's spinning it to make it seem like he was the victim or look how he's saying this happened when this is what I know happened so we can be aware that I'm taking in this information from one person, but can I suspend my judgment as much as possible? Some of that might happen automatically, but can I be aware of not getting too hardened in that belief or that judgment that, okay, I know this person was right and this person was wrong. You're still gathering the information, gathering data, and the longer you allow yourself to suspend that judgment, the better off you are at collecting the data. Now, there I had to collect some water because my throat was getting a little bit dry. As I mentioned, my allergies were, were flaring up, or I think they were, <laughs> saying that I can't be certain of things. Um, even actually, that is something interesting about allergies since I just said that. You know, I thought when I was a kid, I had asthma because that's what I was told. As I've gotten older with some information I'm understanding about what I went through and what I go through now, I wonder if it was just allergies that the doctors were certain was asthma, but maybe they were not correct. I, I still don't know. Uh, I can't say I do know, but it is an example of something that with certainty for a lot of my life, I always said I have asthma, I have asthma, I had asthma as a child, I don't have it anymore, but now sometimes I wonder, did I ever have asthma? Maybe I actually didn't, so it's you know something that I thought was so true and so known about me, I found out might not be the case. And so that's something that this book was pointing out, something that we, of course, time and time again see. It doesn't mean that everything is equal. And so let's say if you're in a medical situation, you should trust everyone's advice equally from doctors to novice to whoever it is. But being aware of this lack of certainty, I think, is not taking away, but actually gives us a more full understanding of what is going on. And when we're looking at different opinions and we recognize that we all are biased, that we can't get away from having bias. I'm reminded of the book, Why Trust Science by Naomi Oreskes that shared that we all have biases, that scientists are human beings first and foremost, and all human beings have biases. And so, of course, even when they do their science and their scientific research, it will influence how they study, what they study, the conclusions they draw, all sorts of things. But what was suggested in that book is that the more diversity of opinions or different people we bring to a certain situation or a certain um, idea or theory, the more the biases are likely to wash out or balance each other out a bit more. So I think this points to how important it is for us to share information, to have people from different backgrounds and experiences come together. And it doesn't mean even with all that, we're going to get rid of all biases, but we have a better chance of getting closer to our best understanding of something rather than when we have a narrow uh, scope or portion of the population look at something or have just one person. One person is going to be very biased, but a pool of people, you would think a pool of people would just increase the bias, but we can see each other's biases sometimes better than we see our own. Doesn't mean we're going to be perfectly good at that either, but better. And if we pull them all together, we tend to understand things better as well. So just a reminder that if someone tells you they know something for sure, 
They probably don't, and they're probably trying to sell you something or sell you themselves because almost everything that there is to know, we can't fully know it. We can't be so certain. So certainty is usually something that is being sold because it gives us that comfort rather than something we can actually know for certain. Let's go to our last commercial break. We'll be right back. Welcome back. So the book today was about, it was called On Being Certain, or about the feeling of knowing or this feeling of being certain that it is more a feeling that this than a sense of just knowing. And so uh, I was saying how we can't really, or we might not know what we think we know or being aware of the limits of that. Um, but I did want to finish the show talking about how we at times might choose to be uncertain when maybe we can have some degree of certainty or more certainty than we currently have. So yes, we, we can't know um, as much as we might think we want to know or we think we know or we can't know how something is exactly going to play out. But there's another way that we can talk about certainty about things like, for example, if you need to get a medical test or exam, you they find a lump or you find some abnormality and you can get a biopsy and so here you might listen to this show and then think oh see we, we can't know things or what's uh, really the point of knowing or we don't know for sure so what's the point of getting this biopsy but that's a different type of not knowing and uncertainty one that we actually can do something about and really what you would be doing there is going to that short-term relief of the avoidance of something that makes you anxious rather than doing something that is in likely your best interest. So we sometimes don't want to know something because we are fa- afraid to face the truth that is there or that reality that is existing in that moment. For example, a test result or we don't want to ask someone something or even um, looking away when something is happening. Uh, you know, people watch sports and you'll see that they look away in a very tense moment because they can't bear to see what's about to happen. So we feel like we can't handle what is going to happen or that experience of going through it. But I, I was recognizing that when people talk about the experience of, let's say, waiting for medical test results, they will often say one of these cliche statements, but it can be very true, that the waiting is the hardest part. And... I thought about that, and you can see that it does make some sense for a few reasons. One is, in the waiting, you can't do anything. So you feel feel very powerless, because you don't know if, let's say, everything's fine, there's nothing to worry about, and you can move on. You can't move on yet, because you don't know. Or do something about whatever it is you're dealing with, to know if there's, let's say, some kind of illness, disease that you have and are experiencing and now you can do something in that waiting time you can't do anything because you don't know what's going on so the waiting can be very very difficult and so in that waiting time really what you experience is that you are having all of the um, possibilities you're carrying them all with you that's something that I was Realizing and looking at how someone deals with something like this, that when you, let's say, are waiting to see 
what the reality is that waiting for those test results the burden you carry is that you're carrying all the possibilities and we even might run through them in our mind should i do this should i do that what if i have to do this what if i have to do that you're looking at all the possibilities and carrying them all with you this is why actually if you've actually let's say done the test and now we're waiting for the results we usually as therapists discourage people from distracting themselves we say oh that's a distraction or an avoidance but this is one time where i feel that distraction and avoidance actually can be quite good because if you're waiting on the test results and there's nothing you need to do to prepare sometimes you might think about how you'd feel or something like that but even that might have minimal value and take minimal time really there's nothing left for you to do so if you can do something to make you not think about whatever that thing is, the test results, and that's actually good. There's no need for you to do anything. There's nothing you need to do. So this avoidance is actually not avoidance of something you need to take care of or something that if you don't do hurts you. This avoidance is actually something that if you keep ruminating on is only going to hurt you. So that's actually a good avoidance. Um, often when we look at coping mechanisms or things that we think of as not healthy, rarely are they always unhealthy. It's usually in some cases or in some ways it actually can be quite good so in this way avoidance is is a good thing so once we find out what the results are although even if it's bad news let's say at least we can get rid of the burden of carrying all the other choices so we let go of that burden that's one thing that feels good and the other part that maybe not even feels good but at least changes and can feel at least positive in some way is that we're no longer powerless to do something or do anything because now we know what we're facing and we can do something about it so that waiting part we have to carry the burden of all the possibilities and we can't do anything about it so knowing makes us feel better because of that or at least has some benefits to it some people even say even though the news was bad i felt better once i got it because now i knew what it was and i knew what i had to do whereas before i was just waiting and weighing out all these possibilities but now coming back to this avoidance, the distraction and avoidance is not good if you haven't taken the test in this very simplified version that I'm giving. If you've done what probably all of us have done at some point, which is, oh, I don't want to go in for this checkup, for this test, for this x-ray, MRI, whatever it is, because I'm afraid of the result. And so I'm going to avoid going. So that type of avoidance, this is where it's unhealthy. We're afraid of facing something and we of course if we just look at it quite clearly we can see that either it's nothing and you're better off knowing so that you can have peace of mind or if it's something you can deal with it and we know that with most types of medical issues most types of problems the longer you ignore it the worse it's going to get so people might have a type of illness that becomes untreatable sadly or they might cause more damage or permanent damage and harm in some way and get more sick so we're not doing anything that serves us by avoiding it and so that's something that we want to be aware of so that's a type of avoidance that is not healthy but we find that people are so good at doing this it's one of our better um, coping mechanisms than most people deal with in a different degree in a different way it's the same thing we do when we procrastinate most procrastinating is avoidance of doing something that makes us anxious for some reason you have to write an essay for school and you're worried about can i do it am i going to do it right facing it means then facing even the grade how do i start the essay 
How do I make a good essay? The more perfectionistic we are, the harder this will be. But for all those reasons, we avoid starting something because it makes us anxious. And the avoidance, unfortunately, can give us a sense of relief in the moment, which is reinforcing. But then we're left with the problem that we had now in a shorter window of time to deal with it. So it doesn't help us in the long run. And so here I was hoping to open up this thought or this type of discussion related to facing things in our life. I understand it's one of those things that almost by definition is easier said than done. So for me to talk about it, it's very easy to say, of course, you should always face things, don't avoid things. But I bring it up because I know it's so easy for us all to do, myself included, that sometimes we need reminders or we will easily fall into the trap of thinking whatever we're avoiding, we should be avoiding or justify it in some way that comforts us at least momentarily to continue the process So I hope as you're listening to move away from just thinking about this in an abstract way and to really consider what in your own life you might be avoiding. I use the very clear example of a medical test. Many people have some issue, either they've had an issue with before and might need a follow-up or a checkup, or they're feeling something. Oh, I felt this tightness in my chest or I felt this lump or something I saw in my body or I felt didn't feel quite right, uh, but we might be avoiding getting it checked out, getting it looked at. Or it could be something in a relationship, something emotional. Is there someone in your life that you have some upset feelings about, you had an argument or disagreement about with, or they did something you didn't like, but you haven't brought it up? Is there anything you've been avoiding in your relationships? And there's, of course, other areas, your maybe financial life, and um, if you're working, your work life, your professional life, is there something you're avoiding there? To look at those things, and the reason why I say this is because I, being a therapist, get to see people deal with their issues in different ways and have seen so often the harm that is caused by Avoidance by not looking at something and then finding out it's too late. Especially as a therapist, I get to see it when it comes to relationships. That sense of regret that people have when for whatever reason, maybe it's through a death, they no longer have the opportunity to be in a living relationship. I say that because you can still be in a relationship internally with someone who's passed You might think of things they said, uh, remember things they said, imagine what they might say in a certain moment, but you can no longer have a direct communication back and forth with the living person. And so one of the things that people often grieve, along with missing the person and wanting to see them again, is this sense that I can never resolve what it was that we had between us, that we never got a chance to discuss what was there what we could have had if we actually worked through those things. This is a very common regret that people have, and it's heartbreaking because once that moment, those moments are gone, it's gone forever. You can't go back and recreate having that conversation or having those moments with them, and you can't recreate what might have been had you had those conversations. And so I... I definitely hope people will look at their physical health and if there's something you need to get checked out I hope you will if it's other areas of life as well really think of that I would say probably all of us are avoiding 
not just one thing, but multiple things, maybe of varying degrees of significance. But we tend to avoid things quite often. In some ways, we sometimes have to do that to function. We can't be thinking of everything all the time, but we tend to avoid things that might be worth looking at. But especially, I encourage people to think about their relationships and their closest relationships, because very often there are these unhad conversations that we don't have, that we ignore, avoid, pretend like we don't need to have, think, oh, what's the big deal, or it's just better to move forward and not live in the past, but we really can't live in the present and the future or have the best relationships in the present and the future until we've worked through the pains and the difficulties of the past. Our relationships are the sum total of everything we've experienced with someone. That's how you feel about them. It's some kind of totaling up. It doesn't mean every interaction is equally valuable, but you put those all together, that's how you feel about someone. And so if you carry these negative ones, these big negative ones, it can interfere with how you feel about them overall and it interferes with how close you can be. I imagine it's sometimes like actual objects in between you and the other person. So when you hug them, you can't hug as close and as tight as you could if you removed those obstacles that are in between you and them. So I encourage all of you, myself included, to think about the relationships in your life that you really value and to consider what are the conversations I haven't had with this person that might actually make the relationship better. They usually will make you feel uncomfortable just thinking about it, and that's why you avoid it. But I hope you will have the courage to take that step, to have those conversations and face them, and then hopefully create the possibility for more intimacy emotionally with that person. That brings us to the end of tonight's show. A big thank you to Ghazale here in the studio. You've been listening to In Session with Dr. Farid Alakwi, Zan Zendegi Azadi.